Well, today's going to be exciting, Jimmy. Yep, start of a new episode series, and I don't have to worry about Godzilla continuing to threaten to step on me for not hardly covering any of his movies. No, Jimmy, I don't want to talk about my vaccination. Oh, ha, 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 no. My head didn't suddenly turn into a mushroom there for a while. And no, my name is not Super Mario, nor did I grow a couple of inches or something like that. No mushrooms coming out of the ears either. Just knock it off, man. Okay, it was embarrassing enough that I had to get that. But thankfully, the nanites that you put in me, thanks to you and Okuro Obuki, I don't seem to be having any of the adverse effects at all, which I'm surprised hasn't gotten me some unwanted attention. Yeah, and now because the board made me do it, you and Jessica aren't too far behind, I think. So you've been warned. But on a lighter note, let's get ready for the episode. We got a lot of guests coming. Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 43. Godzilla 1954. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through Tokusatsu. I am your host, the curator here on Monster Island, Nate March, and the curator of films, I should say. And today is a momentous occasion because we are starting a brand new episode series. Yes, Godzilla Redux. So as you would expect, for such a momentous occasion, I brought back to the show four of my favorite people, my original co-hosts from back on episode two for King Kong 33, Starting over here with the hosts of the Derailed Trains of Thought podcast, Nick Hayden and Timothy Deal. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Happy to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you back. Yes, well, thanks. You know, Nick, I, I feel like our podcast needs to give us a better introduction. We have to introduce ourselves. I know. What's that all about? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you, seriously, man. Yeah, you should start getting the podcast to introduce you for you. Uh, exactly. The podcast doesn't listen to us. No, we, we have a hard time controlling yeah. it. You should have your guest introduce you. <laughs> yes, Jimmy, just like I have a hard time controlling you. <sighs> hmm. And uh, the other voice that you just heard, listeners, is Joe Metter, and he brought along with him his wife, Joy, and just... For future reference, I'm keeping Joy and Jimmy separated because we don't need more shenanigans. Yeah, she's actually hey. in a separate studio. <laughs> yes, she is, which is definitely helping. <laughs> hey, I'm going to say, though, like, I didn't start that. That was all Jimmy. <laughs> oh, OK, let's not rehash that anymore, Jimmy. OK, we're going to we're going to move on from that. All right. Okay, bygones are bygones. You got the snot kicked out of you by Diamagine. It was actually kind of funny. <laughs> so I am a little confused. Apparently, it's been a while since we've been to Monster Island. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. Last time you guys were here was back in January. <laughs> yeah. For, for Gamera. Gamera. Oh, Gamera. <laughs> 
So what do we have this time, Nate? Today, as I said, we're starting Godzilla Redux because by popular demand and because Godzilla is good for business. <laughs> and, you know, because I didn't feel like pointing people back to the material I had made in my previous podcast life anymore, I'm covering the Godzilla films again. So this series will start with what we're talking about today, Godzilla 1954, the OG. <laughs> well, okay, not quite. King Kong 33 is more like the OG. But the genre as we know it started with this film. And then I will be going all the way through Shin Godzilla with this series. So we're going to be at this for a while, to say the least. Oh, and just to let everybody know, in the midst of all of that, I will also be looking at King of the Monsters 56, Godzilla 1985, and also Rodan and Mothra. So there's a lot of stuff coming down the pipeline for all of this. But like I said, I wanted to get all of you back together to cover this because one of the core values of the show, especially when it started, was introducing people who didn't have as much exposure to this genre. And I wanted to make sure I picked the movies that I really thought these are important. So obviously King Kong 33, very important to not only the history of kaiju films, but just the history of film in general. And that's why I wanted you to come back for this, because this is a momentous moment in the kaiju genre. And I would say, even though it took longer for it to happen, I would say it's also an important event in film, although probably a little bit more Japanese film than American films necessarily. So with that groundwork laid, unless any of you have some things to add, we'll just get right into it. So yeah, this was my first time seeing the original Godzilla. I think, unfortunately, the only other Godzilla I'd seen was the... Um, Jaguar? The Matthew Broderick. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm oh, so sorry. Yeah, well, <laughs> to be fair, I think I watched it with Riff Tracks. So that helps. <laughs> that, that helps. <laughs> yes. That helps a lot. The Riff Tracks, actually, for that, it's really funny. <laughs> and for you, Nick, this is your second time yeah, seeing but it. It's been at least a decade. Yeah, but the thing is, is you actually... The, everyone else just came themselves. You actually came here with the whole family, made yeah. a weekend out of it. Oh, yeah. I thought we might as well enjoy Monster Island from coming here. Yeah. And I said, hey, kids, you can watch if you want or not. And so they said, oh, we'll watch a little bit of it. And they just stayed, watched the whole thing. I know. Even... I read the subtitles for Mercy the entire oh, time. Oh, yeah, because Mercy's what? That's your youngest daughter. Yeah. And she's yeah. what, four? Five. Five. Yeah. Okay. So she's five. And she, she they all yeah. actually stayed and watched. That yeah. shocked me. Yeah. To they, be honest. They enjoyed it. But then I have to remind myself that they're your kids. So. <laughs> but I don't think they've ever watched a black and white movie. Oh, this is their first, huh? Wow. So that would, yeah. yeah, that would definitely keep their attention. Well, <laughs> no, I, I was actually surprised they say. I thought, you know, but like the beginning, well, we'll get into this later, but the beginning moves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had fun with him destroying the city because why not? And yeah. You know, like Serenity's like, those are just toys. Uh, <laughs> yes. Wow. She, she could tell you that. Oh, yeah. Instantly, oh, yeah. Like instantaneously. It was hilarious. <laughs> and then Mercy's all like, they're not going to hurt him, are they? Because we we had read the part about how the, the what's the, I forget his name, the father, the. Yamane, uh, Dr. Yeah, Yamane. Yamane, thank you. That, you know, he wanted to protect Godzilla. Mm-hmm. So Mercy was like, oh, no, are they going to hurt him? Nah. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's great. It was interesting. It was, yeah. it was, I did not expect that reaction, but it, it was fun. Yeah. And then for you and Joy. It was definitely our first It was time, your so. first, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And you can definitely see how film has evolved since then. Because mm-hmm. the storytelling was rather slow. It's very Japanese. Parts. Well, it's actually, weirdly enough, a three-act Hollywood-style structure, but everything within it is 
very Japanese. Yes. <laughs> yes. It is very Japanese because uh, Act One is all about mystery. Hi, Teddy. <laughs> He's there in yep. the other studio with Joy. Yep. Teddy <laughs> Kong is still around. Yeah. Yes. And so Act One is the mystery because boats are disappearing and they don't know what's going on. And then Act Two is Godzilla is revealed. And now they have to figure out what to do about it. And then Act Three is when they go about solving the problem but it is not in the way that you would expect from an american hollywood film mm-hmm. i mean the climax of this movie is not some suspenseful action sequence no it is i'm not exactly sure what it's, it's very dramatic but it's not about scientific. suspense what more scientific kind of it, it does have that, that traditional Japanese, like, it just ends. Like, yes. <laughs> like, this happens, and then there's, like, a few words of epilogue, I guess. Not yeah. even. Like, we were like, oh, they're going to tie up something. Nope. Nope. <laughs> it's just done. We're yep. done. Bye. Yep. Go home. Yeah. <laughs> Which, honestly. Nuclear uh, war bad. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> That's oversimplifying. <laughs> Good point, Jimmy. Maybe I should actually give a little bit of a plot synopsis for the five people. Yeah, not even five, like the three, two people who are listening to this who may not know what this movie is. But to put it simply, I mean, and it doesn't sound all that interesting if you just explain the plot. But basically, this is the story of an irradiated monster that is revived by nuclear testing and it goes on a rampage in Japan and starts decimating it. And it's all about how that, that big macro plot affects the lives of ordinary people. In particular, this trio of characters, you know, you have a, a scarred scientist, a sailor, and this woman who, you know, is connected to both of them in one form or another. And them all facing dilemmas about what they need to do to solve the problem in particular the scientist has a weapon that he developed accidentally that he could use to kill Godzilla, but it might actually be worse than Godzilla. So that's one of the many dilemmas that are littered throughout this movie, and we'll go over those, hopefully. I just want to throw this out there. There is way, way, way too much scholarship on this movie. I think this movie has more scholarship than all the rest of the kaiju films put together. It's absolutely insane. So it was difficult for me to streamline my research to have things just to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> so now Nate is going to read to you the internet. Yes. In its entirety. <laughs> Basically. That's what it felt like. You know, it was definitely, a, it would, to explain everything that I got would basically be a fire hose and it would just be me talking and everyone would get bored. Tim, <laughs> you get a drink from the fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> so i wanted to spare all of you that now i did get permission from the board to go a little bit longer than usual because this is the start of a new series and there's so much that could be discussed so i've got a little bit of a buffer and unfortunately technology hates me and it mucked up the newest version of my notes so hopefully I will be able to get through my notes quickly because I kind of lost my place a little bit. Because you didn't pledge your life to Google. Yes, unfortunately. Docs. <sighs> but the nice thing about this is that these episodes will actually serve as primers for a book that Danny DeManna and I are hoping to write. It's a book of essays talking about the scripts and the stories of all of these movies because that's an angle that hasn't quite been used yet for a lot of these books of essays. They tend to talk about the films more holistically, and we wanted to really zero in on the stories specifically. So there won't be nearly as much stuff in there about things like the special effects and the acting and stuff like that. So that's how you can look 
at these episodes, listeners. So before we get into it, and hopefully this will actually enhance what you saw in the film, I am going to go over some historical notes to put the movie into its context, and I will try to get through this as quickly as I can. So one of the things that needs to be brought up is, I mean, there's a lot of references to World War II in this, but the more immediate thing that you have to talk about with this movie is the occupation of Japan. Which, interestingly, that lasted from 1945-1952, and it was the only time in Japan's history that they had ever been occupied by a foreign power. In fact, the only country that has ever successfully invaded Japan is the United States. So part of that was the Potsdam Declaration, which was issued by Allied leaders July 26, 1945, and that was a few weeks after Japan had surrendered. And it outlined the terms of the country's surrender with an ultimatum saying it would face prompt and utter destruction if it didn't. However, the leaders also said, quote, We do not intend that the Japanese shall be enslaved as a race or destroyed as a nation, but stern justice shall be meted out to all war criminals, including those who have visited cruelties upon our prisoners, end quote. And those war crime tribunals are a whole subject unto themselves, trust me. <laughs> So, I mentioned that the Japanese had surrendered a few weeks before that. That was VJ Day. Does anyone remember this from high school? Mm -hmm. That was August 14th, 1945. I know that because I just finished listening to Dan Carlin's Mm -hmm. Supernova in the East Part 6. Yeah, that just came out, actually. Yeah, it came out a couple days ago. Yeah, but it took the Battle of Okinawa, both of the atomic bombings, and the Soviet invasion of Manchuria. And there were still people in the military side that didn't want to surrender. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was they, that was a whole thing too. Yeah, they tried to do a coup and mm-hmm. failed, and that's when they're like, "No, we're, the emperor finally stood up and said, "No, we're done." Mm-hmm. In fact, I was actually just about to get to that. The next day, after VJ Day at noon, Emperor Hirohito read the imperial rescript on the termination of the war in the jewel voice broadcast over the radio, which was the first time the emperor had addressed the common people and the first time Japanese citizens heard their sovereign speak. Because of its formal language and no direct mentioning of Japan surrendering, it did create some confusion among the people as to whether Japan had surrendered. Instead, the emperor said, However, it is according to the dictates of time and fate that we have resolved to pave the way for a grand peace for all the generations to come by enduring the unendurable and suffering what is insufferable. And these would prove prophetic for the rest of the occupation because. It was not necessarily a happy time. I think a lot of good came from it, but it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, shall we say. It was hard to go through, but yeah, had some positive aspects to it, I guess. Yeah, and another reason this was significant was because the emperor's imperial commands were known as the voice of the crane, because the crane is a sacred bird in Japan and was said could be heard even if it flew unseen. And it could be argued that Hirohito became a true voice of the crane at that point. So, who was in charge of this whole thing? Well, none other than General Douglas MacArthur himself, who took charge of the Supreme Command of Alloyed Powers, or SCAP. Although Great Britain, the Soviet Union, and the Republic of China had advisory roles as part of an Allied Council, MacArthur had the final authority to make all decisions. This was probably for the best, considering what happened with allowing the Soviets to occupy Germany after the war and the strained relationship between China and Japan since the war. 
In fact, the Truman administration and MacArthur resisted arguments from Russia to allow them to take part in the occupation. And let me tell you, from what I remember doing my research, Japan lucked out because if the Soviets had had invaded them and occupied them, Japan as we know it wouldn't exist now. I guarantee you that. Uh, Yeah, makes sense. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more stuff that you could go into about that. But there are a few other highlights that I did want to bring up here. Many allied leaders called for Hirohito and the royal family to be tried as war criminals. But MacArthur instead allowed Hirohito to retain his throne and exonerated him of all charges. He did this because he saw the emperor as a symbol of cohesion and continuity for the Japanese people. It also helped ingratiate him to the Japanese, who likely would have rebelled had the emperor been tried and most likely executed for war crimes. Still, there is much debate among historians as to whether this was a good decision. Some argue that Hirohito was simply following protocol and wasn't responsible for the decisions made during the war. Now, there's a lot of evidence for that. It was a lot of it was getting pushed by the military brass at that point. Others, though, point to first source documents where the emperor authorized the use of poison gas in the Battle of Wuhan in 1938. I never thought we'd talk about Wuhan for any other reason than current events. <laughs> during, Emperor Hiro- uh, during Hirohito's post-war reign until his death in 1989, it was taboo to discuss whatever responsibilities he bore for the war. It wasn't long afterward that the debates raged in Japan, although to this day, Hirohito is commonly seen as an innocent figure by the Japanese. There were three phases for the occupation. So you had the initial effort to punish and reform Japan, the work to revive the Japanese economy, and then the conclusion with a formal peace treaty and alliance. So for phase one, that was 45 to 47, the Allies convened war crimes tribunals, as I mentioned, in Tokyo to punish Japan for its past militarism and expansion. The Japanese military was dismantled and former officers barred from holding government office. Land reform was introduced to benefit the majority of tenant farmers and reduce the power of large landowners who advocated for Japan's imperial expansionism in the 1930s. And MacArthur also broke up business conglomerates called the Zaibatsu to transform the economy into a free market system. Finally, in 1947, the Allies dictated a new constitution, this is important, to Japanese leaders that, among other things, downgraded the emperor's status to that of a figurehead. So he no longer held power. He reigned, but he did not rule. I think was how they described it. And then phase two was reverse course from 47 to 50. With Japan in an economic crisis and communism spreading throughout Asia, it was believed that economically weak Japan would be susceptible to its domestic communist movement, especially with the communists winning in China's civil war. So economic rehabilitation took center stage with such things as tax reform. However, it was the Korean War that gave Japan the boost it needed since it served as the UN's primary supply depot during the war, prompting some occupation officials to suggest that, quote, Korea came along and saved us, end quote. (laughs) This also put Japan within the U.S.'s defense perimeter in Asia. Then for phase three, which was from then to 1952, Japan's future was deemed set and a peace treaty formally ending the war and occupation was written. The U.S.'s concerns had shifted away from an armed Japan to spread communism. The treaty allowed the U.S. to maintain bases in Okinawa and elsewhere and guaranteed Japan a bilateral security pact. In September of 1951, 52 nations met in San Francisco to discuss the treaty, and ultimately, 49 of them signed it. Notable holdouts included the USSR, Poland, and Czechoslovakia, all of which objected to 
the promise to support the Republic of China and not do business with the People's Republic of China that was forced on Japan by the U.S. politicians. So a few things that I will mention about this to why the, well, you know, some of the things that are significant to this movie is that censorship was a huge thing during this time. And it was enforced as a means of controlling possible agitators. It even outlawed the mere mention of censorship. <laughs> so they censored the fact that you could talk about censorship. Now, who was doing the censoring? The Japanese government or the U.S.? Uh, it was the occupation, occupation government. Occupation, now, okay. the thing is, is that they were not ruling directly. They were working with the Japanese government at this point. But it was still the allied forces, the Americans, imposing all of this. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things we could talk about with this. Speaking as an American who believes in free speech, I'm not a fan of censorship, but I can understand why they would do it because they didn't need agitators stirring things up and destroying what they were trying to build at that point with the occupation. Yeah, it's a weird scenario. Like, I can't think of very many times when a nation basically had to reform a previous bloodthirsty nation and try to make it more... Democratic? Well, democratic. Westernized. I want to say, make them behave. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, don't get me wrong. Japanese did some pretty terrible things during the war. But U.S. was very careful about not repeating mistakes that had been made following World War I. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's some fascinating some of the decisions they made to thread that needle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they weren't allowed to say anything bad about the Allies or the United States. None of that. To to be fair, we also rebuilt Germany to quite an extent. Yeah, yeah. But it was different over there. It was very different. But the war in the Pacific was very different from the war in Europe, too. Yes, it was definitely. And this is significant because that all ended in 1952. This movie came out in 1954. And it actually had footage of real... This movie actually had real footage of JSDF, which is the Japanese self-defense forces, which during the occupation was forbidden. Mm. So this was exciting for Japanese audiences. They also outlawed things like the depiction of suicide, even if it was heroic suicide, yeah. which we had in this movie. Oh, okay. So all of these things have been lifted. There was an influx of war movies. But what's interesting about this is that a lot of the ones initially were period pieces during World War II. So the Japanese military is technically on the losing side. But this movie, the Japanese audience could root for them. Yeah. And I can understand why the, the depiction of suicide was not allowed, considering how they... The kamikaze fighters? Yeah. Kamikaze fighters, even get, taking ground islands, they would not surrender. They would grenade themselves. Or, oh, mm-hmm. So they were basically suicide bombers? Yeah. Wow, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, they were... It was pretty nasty. Yeah. yeah. And remember, how does this movie end? Sarah's... Spoiler warning! Is Sarazawa basically commits heroic suicide. Mm-hmm. So that he can protect the secret of the oxygen destroyer, which is mm-hmm. why the movie has a very bittersweet ending. Mm-hmm. There's no celebration mm-hmm. at all. If this was an American movie, there would be celebration. Mm-hmm. But they know what had to happen in order for them to save Japan at that point. And in that sense, it was very Japanese in that. Cause yeah, that's how they viewed the defense of the home islands. Yeah, and then something that's relevant with this is that we mentioned that they were given a new constitution. Probably the most infamous article in the constitution was Article 9, which is the Peace Clause, which made Japan renounce war and ban them technically from having an army, which is 
why the self-defense forces are interesting because it's just enough to defend them, but not yeah. enough to take somebody else. That's basically mm-hmm. what it is. But it was meant to keep the uh, Japan from becoming an aggressive imperial power again. Mm-hmm. Wasn't opposed by the Allies, interestingly. It was actually by the Japanese government. And was most likely the work of Baron Kijuro Shitihara, who was the 44th Prime Minister of Japan. I imagine some of the Japanese themselves were pretty sick of war at that point. They were. But the JSDF was, the reason they got around it is because they basically said that they were an extension of a police reserve. So it's a standing army in all but name. Now, while Japan typically restricts military spending to less than 1% of its GNP, the JSDF has slowly grown into the eighth largest military budget in the world. Hmm. And then there was some other interesting things that came about with this modernization or westernization of Japan, such as the enfranchisement of women. And there's a whole lot of stuff that we can go into about that. And that's significant because there you'll see in the diet scene when there's that big debate about whether or not they should publicly mm-hmm. reveal that. And one of the people who's talking is a woman and it looks like there's a bunch of other women yeah. there. They're all arguing with the old men. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. The 1946 general election saw a huge turnout from Japanese women who cast one third of the votes. And then they elected 39 female candidates. So that was something that was unheard of before that. And this is also why the love triangle between Emiko, Sarazawa, and Ogata is significant. It was a clash between old and new Japan because the old ways were the arranged marriage, which is what Emiko is in with Sarazawa. Mm -hmm. But with the American influence during the occupation, they brought the ideas of dating and choosing who you wanted to marry. That was pretty unheard of. It's not that it didn't exist before then. But it really became a thing after that. And so Emiko is in love with Ogata, the sailor. So it's in a lot of ways showing a Japan in transition, going from the old ways into a more westernized way of doing things. Okay, I had missed that. I, I did not realize that, she, that that was a, a prearranged marriage. That it she, was. Yeah, you know. I totally missed that. They don't come out and say well, it, but they said she's engaged to him. And she says, I've I, only ever seen him as an older brother. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like a lot of the things in this movie, which I'm sure we'll talk about, a lot of it's, they just say real quick and you're just supposed yeah. to read a lot of things into it. And if you're coming from both a time gap and a culture gap, it's yeah. easy to miss it. Yeah. 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 And, which is actually one of the things I hope to do with the show to yeah. bridge that gap with a lot of non-Japanese audiences. We can't fully understand it because this is a movie that was made for a 1950s Japanese audience. So as you said, Nick, yeah. we're separated by time and culture. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But another interesting thing is the early years of the occupation were, as I hinted at, were plagued by harsh conditions. Air raids displaced millions and created food shortages. This was worsened by the reparation of over 5.1 million Japanese people from other parts of Asia in the first 15 months of the occupation. This led to increased drug and alcohol abuse, declining morale, and depression. And they had a term for this. They called it Kiyodatsu condition, or state of lethargy. And then there was the phrase, Shikata ga nai? Or nothing can be done about it. And it was used to by both the Japanese and the American press to describe this. It's a little bit like c'est la vie. A significant development from this in the 1950s was the Kazutori culture, a subculture so named after the preferred drink of the artists and writers who were part of it that emphasized escapism, entertainment, and decadence. And I can't help but wonder if this contributed to the popularity of films like this as well as tokusatsu. Mm -hmm. And, you know, probably also things like anime, because this was when you had Tezuka and he was creating Astro Boy. And that was becoming a thing. A whole new, I guess, generation of Japanese pop culture was being birthed at this point. 
But another thing that we need to talk about, and I don't know if you guys have ever heard about this, but the Lucky Dragon number five? No. Familiar, but I don't remember now. No. This was actually ripped from the headlines, and it had a huge influence on this film. So on March 1st, 1954, the fishing trawler Lucky Dragon number 5 sailed close to a nuclear test conducted in the Marshall Islands, which was a former Japanese territory, and the code name for this nuclear test was Castle Bravo. The crew was showered with fallout, and one crew member died. This was seen as the third time a Japanese was killed or maimed by radiation, which is what inspired the opening of this movie. Now, there was talk of actually making it the real Lucky Dragon number five, but Honda decided against that because he didn't want it to be that specific. But it was clearly influenced by because that happened in March and the movie came out in November. And that's also why you mentioned, you might remember, they make mention of there being atomic tuna. That was a scare they had after this because fish is a huge part of the Japanese diet diet and their economy. So they had a scare with that in real life. Yeah. And there have been some critics that I've looked at who actually said that things like the families and the widows and the young daughters of the ship crew in this are stand-ins for the Lucky Dragon families. So I mentioned there was a crew member who died. He was the radio operator. His name was Aikichi Kuboyama. Now, what I'm a little bit confused about is one source I looked at said he died from leukemia. Another one said it was liver cirrhosis. But... Those are very different. Yes, I know. And it actually sparked an international incident between the U.S. and Japan. And the U.S. ended up paying their those families $2 million in reparations. That's a lot of money in 1950s. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and story has it that Kubayama's dying words were that he would be the last victim of radiation or nuclear weapons. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, I hope so. Yeah, let's so, hope so. So far it has been. Yeah. So with that. Uh, are, does that count Chernobyl, though? That wasn't a nuclear weapon. That was a nuclear oh, reactor. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. And actually... Not that many people died from that, I don't think. Oh, okay. Yes, Jimmy, I'll stop boring our listeners with all of this stuff now. Let's just get into the talking about the movie with that nice little primer out of the way. <laughs> and like I said, there's a lot more that I could get into, but I'll spare you all that. <laughs> so, does that enhance your viewing now? Yeah, I mean, we talked already a little bit about how this movie feels very Japanese and important for Japanese cinema. One of my first thoughts what particularly about like the first hour first two thirds of the movie is that there's really not a main character like it's an ensemble the main character is japan (laughs) yeah in a lot of ways and what's interesting and what's interesting is you get introduced to emiko and ogata pretty early on then they disappear for 15 minutes right nobody does that but this movie did it that was weird for its time you're right, but it really starts out as like Japan is the audience and then or the character. And then in the last third, it narrows until there's basically just the three main characters and mm-hmm. there's almost no one else. And those three characters were in the beginning of the movie, but it was never really focused on anyone. It's like, yeah. we'll just kind of touch back on what they're doing. But yeah, a lot of the focus is on what's the government doing? How are the people surviving? Like different villages, like trying to figure out what's going on. I feel like in that first hour, there's probably not very many shots that has fewer than 10 people in it. <laughs> there's a lot of shots of just crowds. Yeah. That, that yeah. could explain the confusion Joy and I had. We're like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, I was 
going to say that explains a lot of that because we were like, I feel like I'm missing something. <laughs> we're missing something. It's the main characters. Who are they? <laughs> I think it's the professor guy. No, it's his daughter and whoever else is attached to her. <laughs> It'd be like, yeah, modern America cinema. You introduce your main character in the first shot and then you do a cool scene to show everything about him. Yeah. And then you do your movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not here. I mean, and it's very Japanese, but it's also just different from the Western individualistic kind mm-hmm. of culture. It's much more of a collectivistic kind of vision. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think what you guys said was right about the main character being Japan. And then because then when, you know, when we have Godzilla attack, we don't really focus on individual you know, it's not like our main characters. It's not like we watch. No, it's not actually, like watching... our our main characters are never in danger it's at like, any point in this movie. It's, you know, the American version is Cloverfield, where it's like you have four people running around; they're yeah. in danger all the time. But this one is just people in the city and districts that we don't have much connection to. But I'm sure felt very real. Yeah. And, well, and the other thing that's interesting that director Shiro Honda does with this is even though. The main characters are never in danger. He does give some characterization to the characters who are basically the victims mm-hmm. that we actually see. So like mm-hmm. the, a scene that was cut from the Americanized version. You have the scene in the train where you have the young couple and they're yeah. talking about the headlines because they've announced yep. that Godzilla is real. And they make references to World War II and the bombings. It, it's yep. indirect, but they said, hey, you know, I survived Nagasaki. Like, yeah, and, yeah. and they make reference to bomb mm-hmm. shelters. And then we see them again later. They're on the boat partying and then they see Godzilla swimming off in the distance and they freak out. And then you have another scene that is it's heart-wrenching to look at when you have the mother with the two kids yeah. mm-hmm. and she tells them don't worry we'll be with daddy soon. well i, I think I, I think at that point well, i turned to my wife and like i didn't and I'm like yeah i'm not reading that that subtitle to mercy <laughs> well that's interesting that <laughs> no. you didn't read that because that scene's in the americanized version but they didn't subtitle it yeah so no one knew you know, what my, exactly all my, was all happening. My, all my other kids can read, but Mercy, I'm like, ah, yeah, we won't go there right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the, the, uh, some people have theorized that it's supposed to be a reference to the war, but those kids are way too young. So okay, yeah. I'm not ex- exactly sure what they're yeah, doing. I, there. I think it either. might have just been maybe the father had already died, so they're making reference to that. But then that comes back later, because then when we get to the scene at the infirmary, and you have those kids that are crying, and Emiko's trying to comfort them, the body on that gurney is her mom. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Wow. I did not piece that together. Again, it's very Japanese, and it's like my my vision of Japanese art is like those those wall panels with like the mm-hmm. nature scene. Then it's you know very iconic, but just like one image create create a sense of whatever they want to create. And in some ways, that's what this is. Like you only get one or two little snippets, and you're supposed to build up the whole emotional narrative there, which is again contrasted with modern America. It's like no, we're going to jam all this action and music down your throat, and you will feel it in your bones. Yeah, um, <laughs> which I, which I enjoy as well. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, as uh, as has been hinted at some past episodes. American films did influence this. Obviously, King Kong. King Kong had been re-released internationally in 1952, and it made more money in that re-release than it did in 1933. It was huge. (laughs) 20 years of pent-up nostalgia, and people went nuts over it. So that... Why didn't they just stream it? (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to get good reception in your river. (laughs) Also, that probably would have been considered magic at that point. (laughs) But... (laughs) 
Oh, shut up, Jimmy. And <laughs> and then another one that you and I are familiar yes. with, Nick, would be the beast. The beast. The beast. Of 20,000 fathoms. From. I know. I always say that. Because <laughs> there's a lot of at least surface level connections to this. What was that weird echo? <sighs> I don't know. It happened last time I was here with Nick. I, I don't get it. Yeah, the power of the beast. The beast. The beast. <laughs> the beast. The beast. 20,000 fathoms. <laughs> You got it right this time. But anyway, uh, so there's a lot of connections with that. It's an atomic monster. Yeah. We have, there are scenes that are very similar. But if you want to hear more about this, listeners, go check out episode 28. I mean, even the working title of the first draft of the script for this movie was called The Giant Monster from 20,000 Miles Under the Sea or something <laughs> like that. Right. It wore its influence on its slave. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no kidding. Now, here's a question for you. The idea of Godzilla itself, is this based... I mean, they made it very scientific mm-hmm. of where it came from. But at the same time, it also talked about, like, the old villagers. Like, we, this is what you said. We have to sacrifice Which is very people. King Kong. Yes. Yeah, I guess it is very King Kong. But I guess my question is, do you know, was there any old Japanese mythology that this was kind of inspired by too? Uh, not directly. There are some that connect Godzilla back to the concept of dragons, but that influence is really minor, to be honest. Okay. He's much more inspired by dinosaurs. Okay. Okay. <laughs> A story about the old man's story. So when Godzilla is attacking Japan, they keep shooting it with everything. And my son and daughter, my older daughter was like, why are they, this isn't going to work. Why do they keep doing that? <laughs> Um, I said the exact same thing. But at some point, my son's like... The trope hadn't been invented yet. But, Nobody knew. But my son is like, I think it would work better than just were to sacrifice the girl. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Your son's, what, 10 years old? 11, yes. Okay. 11. Nick? He reads a lot of Greek mythologies. Uh, you stuff, might so. want to... This was Theo, right? This is Theo. You might want to make sure that Theo and his little sisters are nowhere near <laughs> Godzilla while they're here. <laughs> <laughs> or else you might be wondering where one of them I, went. I know. I, I, it was not a bad idea. He, I mean, he, he had no exposure to Godzilla before this, but I'm like, that makes as much sense as anything <laughs> else. I mean... You know, it's interesting... <laughs> When you're talking about not telling mercy about people dying, yeah. it occurred to me that this is a movie that I can see why you could share with kids because there's violence, but a lot of it is the implicate, like you said, the Japanese yeah. art of implication. Yeah. And mm-hmm. like you don't necessarily think about, oh, there are people dying in all those buildings, those toy buildings yeah. that are collapsing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was done intentionally by Honda. He was a man of restraint. He didn't like doing that sort of stuff. He preferred more the implication and not being nearly as gruesome as he could be. Mm. And well, that makes sense Consider, I mean, he was, he was a pacifist and he was a World War II veteran. Yeah. And so yeah. he witnessed the war firsthand. He visited Hiroshima a year after the bombing. And so a lot of the stuff that you see in this movie, the imagery, the connections to the war, the bomb, even the, the imagery of Japan burning, is taken from the fire bombings during the war. You didn't have to give the audiences the gruesome pictures because they just lived that 10 years ago. Yeah, which is why this film is interesting because it's very cathartic in a sense because the Japanese can watch this and to a certain extent, they can actually kind of root for Godzilla. Like when Godzilla destroys the diet building, people in the audience cheered when that happened because they were just so annoyed with 
the government. With the government at that point. <laughs> and that doesn't yeah. happen in other places. Yeah. And <laughs> the and it was also it's also cathartic because Godzilla is not really the villain in this. Uh-uh. He and Dr. Sarazawa actually have a lot in common. They're both scarred. They said Sarazawa lost his eye during the war. Mm-hmm. Godzilla, and this was an an intentional design choice. He's technically not covered in scales. His skin actually was made to look like keloid scars from radiation scarring. Oh, wow. Hmm. So he's presented as a victim of the bomb, and he's lashing out because of that. Hmm. Which is why the the ending is so emotional. Mm -hmm. And I've actually heard people said people in the original audiences, people cried when they got to that part. If this was an American movie, you wouldn't have that. No. It would be the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Exactly. It would be well, the celebration. That didn't have an ending either, though. <laughs> yeah, most abrupt ending. Boom. You think the... Seriously, Tim, you think the ending for this is abrupt. No, watch watch uh, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. It's literally like, monster is dead, the end. <laughs> yeah, it's super abrupt. <laughs> so there's a lot of really interesting things going on here. It's playing around with the Japanese I, you know, I, attitude toward the war and toward the military. There's a level of ambivalence to all of this because it's so mixed and that's actually one of the genius things about this this movie has a message but it's not hammering it into the audience's heads it presents a lot of things but it doesn't other than the fact that it's anti-war and anti-nuclear it's not really latching onto a particular political viewpoint or something like that it's just so fascinating and i think a lot of people would probably be caught off guard if they're used to the sequels which are certainly campy by comparison i think this movie would shock them and i'm sure it was a shock when this version was finally shown in the united states in 2004 it took 50 years really yeah the americanized version was the only one that was available until 2004 they did special screenings of it and then it was released on dvd finally in 2006 Hmm. was there something you were going to say earlier joy yeah, um, I was going to say, like, in regards to them trying to use bullets and such, my question was, if the result of the atomic bomb and him surviving it, why would they think that it would work? And then I also happens. was thinking, maybe they need to sacrifice the girl from the last movies we watched. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I'm not joking. I it actually occurred to me. I'm like, wait, no, this is the that's the wrong story. Uh, wrong universe. Wrong, huh? yeah. wrong, <laughs> wrong franchise. Yeah. 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 In fact, you're bringing that up. A line that I found in my research actually said, in a Japanese context, the monster is less a reaction to the bomb than a symbol of the bomb. And it's very different in American films. Radiation will be a gimmick, and in this, it's an expression of the terrors unleashed by science. And it's because the Japanese actually experienced the bomb firsthand, yeah. and Americans didn't have that. I always find it, I mean, I, I haven't thought this all the way through, but I, I find it interesting that both Godzilla is sort of aroused by the, you know, by the, brought out by the H-bomb, but science is also the double-edged sword that has to get rid of them. You know, there's mm-hmm. not a, like, they didn't play around with, like, a, some sort of spiritual or naturalistic or mystical. It's Well, they do, they, it's there, there's a, there is some talk of that. See, that's the interesting thing about this is that even though the sequels, they do you know, well, kind of confirm it one way. But in this movie, you're presented with a mythological and a scientific explanation for Godzilla, and it doesn't really pick one. 
No, and, and then but even the solution is scientific. Like the solution is yeah. as bad as the problem. Well, yeah, well that's because Honda, Honda was a was a humanist and he did believe in science and for him scientists were the heroes. Dr. Sarazawa despite his appearances is not a mad scientist. If no. he was an American no. movie, he'd be <laughs> he would be a comic book mad scientist character. Doctor Who. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Doctor Who. I- Honestly, actually, I think he felt more like a live action anime character. Really? Well, yeah. just the fact that he had an eye patch and he had cool hair and he was this kind of tortured. He looked like he was a real brutal. life spike if he had a patch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, too bad uh, Akihiko Harada is no longer all around to do that. Uh, <laughs> it probably would make for the better Netflix special. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, it is interesting, though, because he basically made it by accident and he didn't want anybody to know about it because he was afraid that they would use it. He knew how the government would try and pressure him. To use yeah. It. In fact, uh, from what I garnered in my research he fits a particular character archetype in Japanese stories that they call the nihilistic hero Hmm. Hmm. who does the right things, but he doesn't have a lot of faith in humanity. And given what we're told about him, I can understand. Mm -hmm. And I can't begin to imagine the burden that he must have been under to know that I have the solution to the current problem, but by solving this problem, I may be creating a bigger one. He was terrified of of creating a new arms race with something that was potentially worse than an H-bomb. And the H-bomb was the most powerful weapon that anyone could think of at that time. You know, if I'm honest, and hopefully your listeners won't uh, crucify me for this, but I actually found his storyline probably more compelling than the Godzilla stuff itself. That whole section of the movie kind of felt to me like a film noir in some ways. Yes. The way that it shot the, and the use of shadows and, and kind of, you could even, it's shadows, but yet it's lit in such a way you could even see. You're talking beams. about his house and his lab? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You could see, still see like the perspiration in the face and it's very dramatic. Yeah. Well, look. let me, yeah. and let me tell you, the, the noir elements actually get cranked up a bit more in the Americanized version. I'm not kidding. With the way it's re edited and, well, I can see and stuff it. like that. 1950s is an ideal time for, well, Film noir was still yeah, but yeah, but the he's definitely presented as this kind of quirky scientist character. He doesn't quite fit in with the cultural norms. He listens to European classical music and the way that his house looks. It's almost like a universal horror movie (laughs) in a lot of ways. But he's not a mad scientist. He's not the bad guy. Yeah, and it really turns those tropes on its ear. Yeah. I will agree with you that hitting knew that section, but I think probably partly just because for a modern viewer like me, suddenly you're in the emotional character center. Mm-hmm. But before that, you're just moving along with the, and the ride. And, the and problem, it was really well done. Yeah. And the problem with, I mean, it's, I respect that this is the first Godzilla and it established a lot of these things. But then sometimes the problem with your establishing movies is that after you've seen a couple other, and I haven't, I haven't even seen that many kaiju. I've seen like Mothra and Gamera and a few other things here and there in the C3K. But I already kind of knew all the main story beats that the first hour was doing. Yeah. So because this one did it first. Yeah, exactly. And in in a basic way. So that's not the movie's fault. It's just coming from my perspective. It kind of loses something if you've already seen that stuff. Yeah, well, it's just like a lot of phrases that we take as cliches were mm-hmm. invented by classic literature. You know, yeah. the, well, honesty is the best policy. We think of that as a cliche now, but it was in Don Quixote, yeah. which has been voted by many, many writers as the greatest novel ever written. <laughs> right. It was for me the most compelling part that whole like. 
uh, moral dilemma. Well, mm-hmm. and I, there's no shame in that because the human drama in this is just, it's incredibly good. And yes. what makes it even more astonishing is those three principal actors, they were all actually pretty inexperienced. Mm-hmm. Akira Takarada, who I've met, and he's a wonderful guy. This was only his third movie. He'd only been acting for about a year. Which one is that? Ogata. The sailor. Oh, okay. The sailor. Okay. And you know, he was being viewed as kind of the Cary Grant of Japan. He was called Mr. Handsome and all of that. You know, and uh, Akihiro Harada, was, who was Sarazawa, he was a bit older, but he was still relatively inexperienced. And Momo Kokochi, who played Emiko, she really, you know, she really didn't have a whole lot of experience. And it's just so interesting to see how well they work in this movie. Interestingly, Harada and... <laughs> Takarada originally auditioned to be opposite roles. Oh. And then Honda at the last minute switched them. And that was probably, actually, that was a good decision because Harada exudes more, way more nervous energy <laughs> to, you can use as Sarazawa, whereas Harada was definitely the, you know, the young hunky guy, you know? <laughs> I mean, the it, eye candy of Japan. <laughs> basically. I mean, it, 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 he's the guy that, you know, you could definitely believe that, you know, Emiko lays eyes on him and she's like, who's Sarazawa? But. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I did have a question, and I'm sure that you probably have the answer. And that is, Joe and I were talking about the overacting. Like, (laughs) was that the culture of movies, or was it the movie? Because, like, the one guy's like, yeah, kill him, kill him, and then starts crying, he's dead, he's dead. And I'm like, wow, that's a little over, like, overacted. And, and, and I was, I'm like, and she cries when he burns the research. And I'm like, okay, so is this intentional overacting? Well, or is it like part of the culture of the acting then? Because I don't I, remember. The, melod- uh, the melodrama, I think, was just a thing at the time. Although Honda was known at this point for doing dramas and light comedies. I, I think the crying over the research is, you know, this is a close friend of hers, even if it wasn't going to be married to him this was his life's work and to realize that like he had to throw away his life's work to yeah save humanity down the line mm-hmm. she did kind of cry on a dime though it was like one yeah. minute she's just looking at the next was like ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah because he was like all like hey he didn't even show any emotion and all of a sudden she's like bawling and i'm like wait what <laughs> hey he got a little melodramatic too because he started he bent over and he was clutching his hair and he's like, oh, I, can't, I can't figure out what to do. <laughs> so I, I think it's, that's just a product of its time, really, to be honest. You had that, but you also had surprisingly restrained interactions between the lovers mm-hmm. in this, yeah. which was a yeah. Japanese thing. Mm-hmm. That is a very Japanese thing. Yeah. I thought like the basically the most they do is they they have like a long distance hug. I mean that's about <laughs> it. But they're supposed Public to be Public displays of affection will be punishable by executions. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I've as any listeners of my podcast will know, I'm, I'm a fan of Kingdom Hearts and the amount of affection that characters will show each other in western fan art compared to what happens in the actual games is uh <laughs> is pretty striking. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm not I'm not talking about like smut fan art. I'm just talking about like genuine like lovey dovey fan art. It's like, okay, it's nice, but you'll be waiting the whole game for that and they'll just hold hands. Well, you'll be lucky if they hold hands. <laughs> yeah. They'll look at each other at the end. Yeah. yeah. I mean I'm gonna I I'm you. gonna tell you right now, the actual <laughs> number of times I can think of 
two people kissing in a Godzilla movie, I can count on one hand. <laughs> I'm serious. And yeah. one of them was an American movie. So <laughs> where I guess it was actually Godzilla 2014 where they decided, you know what? We got to make up for the like of kissing in this franchise. Let's make out for about a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. It's actually interesting that you bring up the new ones because I was actually thinking about, you know, like in the new ones, they're like, we don't want to kill them. We want to study them and protect them. And this one, they're like, kill them. Well, <laughs> well there was one scientist. That well, see, protected. that's the yeah. thing. Like I said, I mentioned before that this movie is full of dilemmas. There are three dilemmas that are presented in this movie. And each of the characters in one form or another is representing this dilemma. As you talked about, Joy, so you have the dilemma of Dr. Yamane says, we need to study Godzilla. And everyone was like, no. Well, and he gives a legitimate reason (laughs) why. It's not just, oh, it's a dinosaur I've never seen before. None of that. It's It's actually, he survived radiation. We need to figure out how the heck he survived radiation. This could be very beneficial. Mm -hmm. And then then everyone else is saying, yeah, but he blows up cities. We kind of need to kill him. And then you have the other dilemma that is faced by Dr. Sarazawa where he's like, okay, do I use the oxygen destroyer or not? I can take care of the prob- this problem now, but I might create a bigger one later. And then poor Emiko has to pick between two men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, maybe this is just me being cold-hearted toward animals, but the, the sci- what's the scientist's name? Yamane. Yamane. His dilemma just doesn't really connect with me. I'm like... Even yeah, the prospect of learning how to survive radiation? Because that's he, the crux of it. He he has a fair point, but why not study his dead body? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> did you see how invulnerable he was? Well, I, I mean, yeah, here's my point. Like, it, it's a it's, it's not a bad, bad idea to study it, but it's just not very pragmatic at this point. Well, yeah. It, it made sense before he to- destroyed Tokyo. Well, yeah. 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 Like, when he was just causing problems, you're like, okay, we made him mad. We, someone woke him up. We should do something. Yeah, interestingly, by the way. Yeah, interesting. Sleep. <laughs> well, interestingly, I just want to point this out. Godzilla has no discernible motivation in this. Mm-mm. In the earlier was, drafts yeah. of the script, they gave him clear cut motivation. He was motivated by hunger. In fact, there was even a cut scene where Godzilla would have had a cow hanging out of his mouth when he peeked over the mountain in his first scene. Oh, okay. But hmm. they eliminated that. So we don't really know why he's doing this, which lends a little bit more to the subtext of it, where, you know, as the victim of the bomb and the mythological connections. That being said, what's interesting is that all of these dilemmas that we've been talking about get solved by one decision by one character, and that's Sarazawa. When he decides, I'll use it, that sets up a series of events where he resolves all of those. He destroys all of his notes. He lets himself die so no one can use the oxygen destroyer again. Until Godzilla versus Destroyer. And <laughs> he's gone so Emiko can be with a guy. In fact, his final words he's are like, yeah, I hope you're you happy. Two, yeah, you two go be happy. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. I thought was really nice because like they kept not finding a good time. Well, I was going to tell him about us, but then he destroyed all the yeah. fish. Yeah, and that's and that's the and that's the thing that's actually kind of awkward. Uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't the right time. Well, and that's the really interesting thing is, like I said, you're seeing how these big events affect people's personal lives. So it's making <laughs> these big events more personal. The, the macro and the micro are interrelated much better than in some of the Godzillas. I haven't seen a lot of them, but yeah. some of them, they seem, they don't really exist. They're in the same universe and things are happening at the same time, but they don't really matter to each other. This yeah. one, it's really a loose continuity. Well. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but that this one's al- very tied, very close. Yes. And then obviously it also solves the problem of, you know, do we kill him or study him? Well, we're going to kill him. So, 
I, that's just really interesting. So one character, one decision, and it solves all the big problems. Yep, no sequels, no more movie, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, and that's the interesting thing. Some people might look at this, because they've all been trained by Marvel. Yes, Jimmy, like me and everyone else here. When uh, Yamane is saying that as long as there is nuclear testing, I can't believe that there wouldn't be another Godzilla. Yeah. And it was not meant to be sequel baiting. There were no plans to make sequels. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be one of those lingering things that the filmmakers were leaving with the audience. Here's the moral point of the story, in case you missed it. Nuclear testing, bad. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of funny, that, like I said, that you bring that up because... Well, that is exactly what happens in the second movie. Yeah. It's another Godzilla. Well, we get, I mean, wanting, I didn't feel like, it was, I mean, I know there's a million of them, but I didn't feel like sequel bait to me. It just felt like the yeah. proper ending to how they set up this movie. Mm-hmm. Very thematic. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the, going back to the oxygen destroyer a little bit and the dilemma there, it's actually interesting. Honda actually drew from some real world inspiration for that. There's a lot of people have compared Sarazawa to Oppenheimer, who mm-hmm. is the head of the Manhattan Project and yep. eventually grew to not like what they were doing mm-hmm. and regretted what he did because of the end results. But Honda also saw inspiration in Alfred Nobel, after whom the Nobel Peace Prize is named. Mm-hmm. You know what he's famous for doing? He invented dynamite. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And he invented it to be used in mining. Yep. And then it was used as a weapon as well. The humans didn't do that. Yes, they do. (laughs) This great thing that was meant for good. Let's make it a weapon. Let's blow stuff up. Yeah, we're only going to use these dinosaurs for a park. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, our competition? Yes. Yeah. We still we still have a better safety track record than they do. Yeah. Do you have better despite the unfortunate nineteen ninety nine incident with the disco space nuns? Don't ask audience. (laughs) Yeah. We don't like talking about it. There was something in the in the history podcast I just finished that was very interesting. It was kind of his final thoughts on the war and in particular the atomic bomb. When you say his, who do you mean? Dan Carlin. Oh, the host? Yeah. Had we found out the bomb a year after the war, we may have tried to use it in a different way and not got our hands burned by the stove and could have been really bad during the Cold War. Uh, Oh, that's Mm. actually a really good point. And we may have found that level of destruction that could destroy the world and then just saw what it could do and backed off rather than actually destroying something. Yeah. Nathan, the question I had from after I looked up in Wikipedia just to see, mm-hmm. uh, and one thing they brought out, and I'm curious if you'd read anything about this, that some Japanese movie critics weren't super impressed by the time, but then it got a little bit more popular with Japanese film critics after the Americans made their version. Yeah, it was, strangely enough, the movie was not particularly well-liked in Japan, actually, at least with film critics right when it came out. But I think it was because it was just so different and so new that they didn't quite know what to do with it. It's not like science fiction films were quite a thing uh-huh. at the time. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, and I guess the the play Devil's Advocate a little bit, if I may, because I can imagine. I also saw like Roger Ebert wasn't a huge. He's not fan a fan. No. Yeah, and I I can sort of see to an extent why that where the I, I get Godzilla as kind of a metaphor for. The atomic bomb and all that kind of stuff. That's the most common interpretation. There's a lot of them. But, but I mean, and, and I guess if that's your interpretation that, or how you people are talking about it, you could look at that and say it was like, well, but the atomic bomb is kind of scary enough of itself. 
it's almost a truth is stranger than fiction thing. Like for some people, the idea that this kind of destruction is just caused by people, by man creating this metal cylinder that dropped out of an airplane is almost scarier because it's more realistic than a giant lizard. Mm-hmm. So I can kind of see it both ways. I can see how some people, it's a release, it's a Rorschach thing for some people. Who's like, why do we need a giant lizard? Like, atomic bomb is scary enough in and of itself. Good point, Jimmy. I told him actually before you guys got here that I was actually going to say something to you guys as feedback for your podcast. I was just actually, as you were saying this, I was thinking this would be good talk. <laughs> yeah, about yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to send you guys an email, but since you've broached it, you know, consider this your listener feedback for the you know, for your show. I would say, in defense of that, or well, as a rebuttal to that, I should say, uh-huh. is that is the concept of recontextualization. The idea being that you know, this is what we do, particularly with genre fiction is taking an idea or a situation or something along those lines and then presenting it differently. Like when you said, Nick, where you talked about using genre trappings can amplify yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking that so, the whole time. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's what this does here. So people can, in a way, it is taking the, and this is actually something that was said by one of the critics I looked at, is taking something like a scary, like the atomic bomb, and then turning it into art or even fun. At this point, you know, and recontextualizing it as a city destroying fire breathing lizard. Mm. But by by recontextualizing it, it can present it kind of a a, what was the term that you used? You talk about like poetry and how uh, lateral thinking. It's a little bit of lateral thinking. And by approaching it that way, it can bring ideas and concepts to mind that you may have not thought of if you were thinking about it more literally. And it might not work for everyone. Yeah. Like like Tim said, like some people would be like, it's a giant lizard. Who cares? I mean, I mean, some people yeah. and other people would be like, no, I see a new fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. And I had fun. And that's true for lots of forms of art. I mean, there's some people who just don't get musicals because there's people singing and people do, don't do it, that kind of dancing in and dancing in real life. <laughs> yeah, I do. Wait a minute. I do. Well, sure. Yeah, obviously, and some people do. But uh, I can see- you think you live in a musical. I do. <laughs> I don't think I know I do. <laughs> but do you okay no. <laughs> join oh, did wait. you know okay that, that does muse. bring me yeah to, actually yeah um, right I here like interrupt but that does bring me to my theme song for this <laughs> movie actually had help from it you guys so thank you because i was like the one i was originally thinking of i've used it in another movie and i'm trying to you know make these all different. unique <laughs> yeah, keep everything unique. So this one is goodness gracious, great balls of fire. <laughs> we got to go with the obvious. <laughs> yep. I still um, think it should have been the Blue Oyster Cult song, but apparently you've never heard of it. So never heard of it. You You're disappoint all alone me. On the Monster Island of that song. <laughs> Sorry, but yes, okay. you all disappoint me. Apparently, none of you have heard of this. I've heard of Great Balls of Fire, though. So Yes. I, so yeah. has Excellent everybody. choice, Joy. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and thank you for your out, because sometimes it's like there's too many options. <laughs> yeah, kind of like me when I was doing my research on this movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. But we're talking about all of the lofty things that this movie is doing. You know, it's interesting because apparently Honda despite being, I think he was probably in his 40s at this point, he did actually naively think that this movie would actually coincide with the end of nuclear testing Hmm. Hmm. he felt that strongly about it he was you know he was that proud 
of what he was doing. Not bad to have aspirations for your art, I guess. <laughs> no, he, he, like I said, he just yeah, we were, we were naive. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're best friends with Kurosawa, you know, maybe mm. that'll happen. And yeah. there's actually a lot of bleed over between, believe it or not, with Kurosawa films and movies like this. Well, a lot of them were made by Toho. They used a lot of the same actors and a lot of the same crew members. Uh, Takashi Shimura before this was in Seven Samurai, and he was the Doctor Yamane. Okay. And he had been in a couple of other Kurosawa movies like Akiru. Oh my gosh, you want to watch a movie that'll break your heart? Akiru watch Akiru. Is a good movie. Akiru. Yeah. Oh my good. Oh my lord. <clears throat> yeah, that'll mess you up. And when that movie came out, he was declared. This is kind of funny. He was declared the best actor in the world. The Americanized version of this movie gets released, and suddenly he can't act. Ooh, bad dub. Yeah, I, I blame the dub for that. But I'm just like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? So did Honda, that's the director's name, right? Yeah, Shara Honda. Remind me, did he uh, go on to direct more Godzilla movies? or Many. Many okay. <laughs> this became what he was best known for? Uh, yes. He did a bunch of other movies, but unfortunately the only ones that you can get in the United States are his Godzilla and Tokusatsu films. But okay. he did, like I said, like comedies, he did dramas, he had a couple of war epics. Is this his favorite of his Godzilla movies? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, that would be my guess from what I know of him. Yes. Okay. I, a lot of people talk about how he was, he has craftsmanship with what he does, but he was much more a company man than Kurosawa. Kurosawa was a ridiculous auteur. <laughs> he was kind of insane. I've heard stories about him. But after a while, Honda, he, it was a job and he did the job because he needed to work. Yeah. And so he became the go-to guy for Godzilla films. So he just was like, okay, I got to do this. It's not that he didn't work hard with those other movies, but this is the one where it's like he really worked to make this his own. But the thing is, is that this movie is such a collaboration between everyone involved. We haven't talked about Akira Fukube with his score in this. I did, I did really enjoy and, his And, you know, the, just what he did with the music in this is just astonishing. The music was good. And, you know, when you know his background, it's really interesting where he came from. He was, he was self-taught and his primary influences were European classical music and the music of the Ainu who were the native people of Japan. And he did military marches for the Japanese military during the war. And so he brought that to this. And then Eiji Tsuburaya, who did the special effects. And uh, he was heavily influenced by people like Willis O'Brien with King Kong. He had his own personal print of King Kong. And he watched it all the time. He even had Haru Nakajima, who did most of the scenes as Godzilla. He made him watch the movie and watch what Kong did. And then Nakajima went to the zoo and studied how bears moved. He took this very seriously because he thought of himself as an actor, not as a stuntman. So it's like, okay, I'm Godzilla. This is my act. This is my role. This is my character. This is, you know, this is what I'm doing. And he took it very seriously. You needed all of these elements to come together. You know, the, the screenwriters that they had, the, there was a guy named Kayama who did the original draft of this. And it was, it was really different. There's a, the main beats are there, but the characters were really different. And Godzilla was an octopus. Huh. <laughs> That's different. Yeah. Godzilla was an octopus at one point. <laughs> I was going to say about that actor, he took method acting to a new level. Uh, well, who? The one who studied the bears. Oh, Nakajima. And that with that suit weighed 200 pounds and wow. he, he would pass out and black out. He had blisters, muscle cramps. It was hell 
to be in that suit. And yeah. they said that every time he took the suit off at the end of the day, they would drain a cup of sweat out of it. Ew. <laughs> yeah. That's gross. Yeah. But like I said, he did it. He performed it. He didn't complain. He he mm. did it. And he played Godzilla for 18 years. Wow. Wow. It's Japanese. 12 movies and 18 years. And he was monsters in other movies too. Mm. And in some TV shows. It was his thing. Wow. Being a suit actor. Now, did the uh, special effects director have an affinity for Hot Wheels? Or <laughs> You want to know why they ended up using miniatures? Subaraya actually did want to do stop motion at first. Oh. Because of because... King Kong. Mm-hmm. But with the resources that they had and the things that were called for in the script, he told the filmmakers, yeah, we can do stop motion, but it'll take seven years. <laughs> Ooh. Ouch. Because he calculated it out how long it would take. So like, no, we don't credits. have seven years. We have like seven months. What can you do? So they said, okay, we'll build one twenty-fifth scale miniature sets and we'll use a rubber suit. Mm-hmm. You know, my favorite shot of Godzilla, actually, I think has to be his very first one uh, where he's mm-hmm. speaking. It's over- funny that you say that because I'm not a fan of that puppet. Was it a puppet? It was a puppet the first time. Well, the, I mean, when he pops up over the mountain, that was a puppet. I, I don't know. It just it, could have even been a sock puppet. It seemed that wor- it almost worked for me as a jump scare. Like he, he just a, because you have the hill there providing kind of contrast to kind of showing mm-hmm. his size. I mean, the downside was they cut really quickly. The shots of Godzilla were so short that like yeah. you know it, it really felt like they were trying to show him as little as possible. Um, and they were, which yeah, I yeah. imagine. I mean, the script actually originally called for Godzilla to make a full appearance in the scene when he comes ashore on the beach during the storm. Okay. Which, interestingly, the guy who uh, that we see in that, when he gets out of the bed, he was one of the survivors from the boat that Godzilla attacked. Mm-hmm. And then Godzilla caught him and killed him there. Mm-hmm. And he's the only one who sees him. Yeah. Which he said, uh, one of the critics I looked at said, that's kind of in line with Japanese ghost stories, where if you see the ghost, it puts a curse on you. Oh, okay. And then it comes back and gets you later. Sure. You know, so it's like, if you see Godzilla, you die. Well, and definitely a lot of the night shots of Godzilla looked pretty cool, too, Mm -hmm. with the the kind of glistening off his skin and all that stuff. But, I don't know, I just, I saw that first, like, him peeking over the hill. It's like, ah! It really puts puts it into perspective. My kids like that one. They're like, oh, there he is! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and then... then Pounding everywhere, like this is. Yeah, stuff. actually, it was uh, my friend John Lemay in one of his books. I've had him on the show a couple of times. Actually, said that if for him, the opening of the movie with the credits that starts with the thunderous footsteps mm. said that's like the distant detonations of atomic bombs. Oh, you know, mm. and then the t- the name of the movie comes up and Godzilla roars, and you know, it's just. Yeah, there's a lot of care put into this movie. Is it perfect? Well, no, because no movie is perfect. I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> Say what you want about Citizen Kane or The Godfather or whatever. There's no such thing as a perfect movie. Does this have the level of obsessive care that you would say see in a Kurosawa movie? No, because that's not the kind of person that Honda was. He was a little bit more, not hands-off, but he trusted his actors a little bit more as opposed to giving very strict things that had to be done by the actors and everyone else on set. Very different approaches. I also really did like the fact that you didn't see Godzilla for like, um, I should have actually looked. It was about 20 minutes. I mean, because it kind of, especially being the first true Godzilla movie, it definitely has some anticipation in there. Mm -hmm. 
but it's like it kind of gives you the whole feeling that the audience would have you know like the audience and the actors would have had at that time of what's going on what's causing this and all those things to make you kind of in where they feel because you don't know what's going on any more than they do yeah and yet people complained that godzilla 2014 basically did that and they thought it was the worst thing ever what's wrong with you people (laughs) be consistent Got anything else before we wrap up? I have so much that we could go over, but like I said, there's just there's too much. There's just a wealth of things to talk about with this movie. Nate reads the internet. Chapter two. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, Jimmy. Plenty of material for your blog. And also plenty of material for Danny and I when we do our book. <laughs> but like I said, too much scholarship. We've only yeah. scratched the surface, and I promise all of you listeners... If you don't check the show notes for the show, you should, because I put all of my sources in there. So if you want to dive more into this, you will get a section dedicated to further reading and my, and, and my bibliography, so you can learn even more about this wonderful film. Really, it well, just I'm says the entire the internet. That, uh, Teddy Kong and Bitzilla have been pretty quiet today. That is surprising, actually. <laughs> yeah. Are they off visiting their friend Gamera? I think they might be. <laughs> He's still king of the monsters at this point, which still only brought trouble to the island, trust me. Well, as far as uh, Godzilla, I guess just to kind of wrap it up, I guess I would say, yeah, I respect this movie for what it is and what it brought to the genre. Personally, I think I liked King Kong more. It's a more fun movie. You have to be in the right mood to watch this because mm. it's very dour. It's kind of depressing. It's not something that you're going to pop in every week and watch. Yeah, <laughs> sure. sure. It, I will say it was rough for Joy and I to get through the first time. Sorry for all you diehard Godzilla fans, but we <laughs> fell asleep twice trying to get through it at the same spot. So <laughs> chapter 12, if you're looking on your own Criterion DVDs. <laughs> About the time that you go to meet uh, Sarah's hour for the first time to find out when she's going to tell him about the relationship and gets the secret of burning eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had seen it before, so I kind of knew what I was getting into, but yeah, my kids stayed interested enough. Maybe they're just super bored. That day. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, but, I mean, well, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're here to visit all the monsters. Know, at this so, point, so. That's a fun part. Yeah. I know, but it, I mean, it is, you know, Why you go into it, knowing color, it's a different dad. <laughs> Actually, the, a common myth, Godzilla is not green. He's actually charcoal gray or charcoal black, except for one, in one movie. Oh. Oh, really? That's interesting. Not even he's in only the... green once, maybe twice. Even in That's his something for you to look into, Jimmy. I know he's green in Godzilla 2000. <laughs> for sure. So even in his color movies, he's usually dark gray. Interesting. Dark gray or black. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll, I'll say it did keep my interest. I, yeah. But it was more of an intellectual and curiosity element than more of a I'm feeling emotional connected to this. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, you don't you don't really feel very emotionally connected till you get to the triangle, basically. So you got some actual characters to yeah. connect to. Yeah, like as soon as he started talking about the dilemma about what he found, I knew that he was going to end up committing suicide and taking everything with him. Mm-hmm. That was the only solution that was available. Yeah. Which is a shame because he's a cool live action anime character. Yeah. <laughs> he really is. I agree. 
Maybe he inspired all of them. You never know. You never know. <laughs> like all, all he needed, was, well, it would have made sense because he had an eye patch. But otherwise, if he had like the eyeglasses, he'd be like the cool class president and some anime. <laughs> pushes, right? pushes glasses up his nose, you know. If this was Cowboy well, he Bebop, really he would cool have the dead eye to aim with. <laughs> no, first time you see him, he's on the dock and he's wearing sunglasses. and With and, an eye patch. With yeah, an eye patch. Yeah, and my wife's like, does he have an eye patch on? <laughs> Because he's that cool. He's that cool. Uh, he, he has to protect his. Cool. They don't make like single eye sunglasses. Like, like monocle sunglasses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Monocle> sunglasses. <laughs> Why aren't there monocle sunglasses? <laughs> That'd be amazing. Seriously, Jimmy, you have a monocle sunglass? Why? Because <laughs> he's that cool. Apparently, yes, he, he is. He was friends with the Monopoly guy. <laughs> Oh, you're welcome, Jimmy. Uh, although, yeah, tell me where you can get them. I, uh, yeah, I'll take a, some, a monocle sunglass. Really? Is any optical? Okay. Hmm. Now, do they come in green? <laughs> Excellent. So Are like you guys the, done? Yeah. So, so, like, the sun's in one of your eyes, basically. <laughs> well, or basically, if you want to, like, tip your hat over one oh. eye, but you want to <laughs> still want to keep the other eye covered. You know, you're driving. You don't want to put a thing on the side. Uh, you just put it in the one eyeball. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I will end this part of the conversation with one of the weirdest facts you will probably ever know about anything Godzilla. Doctor Sarazawa actually appeared in a Godzilla video game as a playable character, and he's gigantic. <laughs> and he walks around holding the oxygen destroyer. That seems like something you destroying a- buildings. I think you use that in the game of Super Fight. <laughs> no wait he's, he's a playable character is this like a beat em up game or sort of it's on the dreamcast and never got released in the, in america it was called godzilla generations and he's an unlockable character so wait, is are you playing do you get to play as godzilla in this you get to play as godzilla and then dr sarazawa is an unlockable character oh, okay. and he's as tall as godzilla and he walks around with the oxygen destroyer so is that it's less a beat up and more like smash up the buildings yes kind of rampage basically okay. for you. the dreamcast gotcha but I- terrible <laughs> that is kind of weird. I, I feel like Sarazawa's desire not to have his his invention misused has been misused by the Dreamcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the evil, it. evil Dreamcast. Curse you, Saga! Wait, I can't let them use it. Destroy? Oh, I will destroy. Build my clone will destroy buildings with it. <laughs> And when I destroy the buildings with it, I'll destroy Sega as well. <laughs> <laughs> but they have Sega Tassanjiro. That might be uh, hard, uh, easier said than done. And maybe five of you got that. I got it. <laughs> anyway. Must I, Jimmy? I'm not particularly fond of this one. Yeah, I don't like getting shot into space either. Fine. Fine. I really wish I didn't have to read this because I'm going to have some explaining to do. But yes, the mandatory memo reading from my Orwellian overlords is one of their latest tweets. And I don't really want to read it because it kind of involves me. So here you go. Well, our first annual Monster Island employee game night was a roaring success. Ha 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 ha. Congratulations to Jimmy from NASA for winning tonight's poker tournament and for keeping Nate Marchand in line after one too many rum and Dr. Peppers. I don't think we need to hear the story about that. I would rather-
rather not share the story about that. The only reason I even had a second and third shot of those things was because rum and Dr. Pepper was my late grandmother's favorite drink. Aww. So it was in honor of her. Aww. It wasn't that the board drove you to drink this time. I can neither confirm nor <laughs> deny that may have happened. I think we've unrevealed the, the real reasons behind. Moving on. <laughs> and now with that embarrassment out of the way, we can move on to a very important segment of the show. The Patreon shout outs. Yay. Go show. Travis Alexander, Michael Hamilton. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest star, Danny DeMano. Yay! Eli Harris! Chris Cook, come on down! Let's make some Damon noise! <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm sure he's never heard that before. Oh, no, not ever. Live from Strongpedia, the Cellcast! And finally, Bex from Redeemed, Otaku! <laughs> well, that was some wonderful variety to the shenanigans that is this segment. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully you don't mm -hmm. get hit with copyrights from me. <laughs> you know, funny thing, I actually have heard about YouTube channels that get copyright strikes from themselves. It's kind of funny. <laughs> YouTube's a that strange beast. Talent. Yeah, yeah. well, it's a Toei that makes Super Sentai slash Power Rangers and Kamen Rider and all of that. They were infamous for just slapping people with copyright strikes. They launched their own YouTube channel and put their own shows up, and then they got copyright strikes from themselves. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Poetic justice is what I call it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you, listeners, can get perks just like this by joining MIFVMAX on Patreon for as little as $3 a month. I got it right this time. Yes, Jimmy, I, I said $3 a month, not $3 a day like in our last broadcast. <laughs> That's ex that'd be expensive. <laughs> for just $3 a day, you can feed this poor postgraduate student. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Now, to let all of you know what our next episodes are going to be. Normally, I preview two episodes, but this time I have to let you know about three because I just made arrangements for a bonus episode this month, immediately after this episode. Yes, it will be the Kaiju Podcast crossover event of the summer. MIFV and Kaiju Weekly join forces to talk about Godzilla Singular Point, the new 13-episode anime series airing, well, it's airing in Japan right now, but it will be dropping to the rest of the world on Netflix very soon. And then after that, <sighs> this summer is not going to be easy for me because the year of Gamera continues. And this time, it's Gamera versus Zigra. Yes, Gamera versus the alien shark. Well, sounds cool. I wish you luck with that. It's an exploitation film for children. That's all I'm saying. So does Gamera get Ziggy with it? Or... <laughs> you deserve that. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> Let's just say this is a children's film where the filmmakers found an excuse to have a pretty girl walking around in nothing but a bikini for about 20 minutes. <laughs> and the reason that they may have done it might have either been accidentally brilliant or just accidental. I'm not sure. 
Shut up, Jimmy. <sighs> and But my guests on that will be Travis Alexander, who's an MIFV Max member and one of the hosts on Kaiju Weekly. And I will be joined by one of the new podcast kids on the block, Matt Noponen of Atomic Turtle, a podcast dedicated to Gamera. That sounds like a brave man, <laughs> based on the, what little I know of Gamera. Yeah, well, just what just we know wait of until they the hate Mystery Science Theater era. So <laughs> well, uh, Gamera versus Gamera versus Zigger was the last one on MST3K. Uh, I, I do vaguely remember. Yeah, so but... they get to watch the MST3K episode, and I don't. I uh, oh, I'm not bitter, not bitter at all. Nope, not at all. No, not at all. And then after that, we will have another first on this show. We will have our first Patreon-sponsored episode. Thanks to Eli Harris, who asked that we cover three episodes of Godzilla the series, the far superior animated Saturday morning cartoon sequel to the 1998 film. So we'll be looking at the first two episodes, which if I remember correctly is called New Family, and his personal favorite episode, Deadlock, because it's about the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, okay. I think we killed Joe. <laughs> no, no, I was just hanging my head lower in shame from that bad, bad joke. <laughs> that is the actual episode title, man. Nothing I, I can I know. do about it. it. It's not your joke. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, with that, MIFE would not be complete without shameless self-promotion. What do y'all got? Well, you've heard about our podcast a little bit before, Derail Trains of Thought, where we talk about all manner of storytelling. Uh, for the creator and the consumer. Good job. I know. I, I'm trained well now. <laughs> Dance for me, monkey! <laughs> How many years have you been training? Uh, uh, for this thing, that particular part, not as long. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when we started using that catchphrase, Was actually. I honestly don't remember. Rapper. Uh, might have been shortly before that. I remember we had one of our guests admonished, you really need to explain your podcast at the outset a little bit better. And you're like, yeah, you're right. You we need do. a tagline. So anyways, as Nathan alluded to previously, we talk about all manner of storytelling, both from the inside and the outside. And we talk about, like last episode, we talk about genres and how they influence stories. And we've mm-hmm. tackled philosophical things, practical things, story-related things. And our spinoff podcast from that is called The Weekly Hijack, where each episode we record our immediate reactions to some episode of TV. Currently, we're going through season five of Lost. Well, at least as we've recorded this. Yes. Uh, I don't. You guys record those way in advance. Yes. Yes. I mean, recording wise, we're already into season six, but like release schedule wise, as we record this episode, we're in season five. But anyway, good stuff. My wife, who is this is her first time watching it, we kept most spoilers away. F- well, yeah, I don't know. yeah, basically, basically. But for us, it's a rewatch because we're big Lost fans. Yeah, there are, you guys have done several different television shows, and it's always really funny too when you bring on like Brianna when you yeah. guys were doing yeah. Babylon Five. She had no right. idea what was going on. Then you had to banish her yeah. <laughs> into the other room to we talk only, about spoilers. We only had to do that with Janelle. I think we did it twice, twice yeah. because there was just one secret for like end of season five. We just we were, couldn't spoil. We just we couldn't talk about it with her in, at all. But uh, other than that, we're not quite as tight lipped with Janelle as we were with. <laughs> we keep Brianna out all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, because there's just so much foreshadowing in Babylon 5 and yeah. with Lost we were able to talk around things just enough but anyway so yeah there's that so oh, if you're a I, I should ask Nick do you have any books that you want to promote right now I or? was going to say the, that's, the reason why you say for the creator and the consumer is because both of you are also creating things you're not simply consuming true although True. for me it's 
I have a project that's been in development for a very long time that gets delayed a lot. But Nick tends to actually be much more productive. Yeah, not lately. Well, yeah, well, Nick year. and I have a new book but out we right have now. Nathan and I are co-writers co- on the Sorism. And the, and the God the, Who Devours. <laughs> yes, which is, you've probably mentioned on this podcast. Yes, at least once. About And uh, on some other podcasts. Barbarian Sword of Sorcery Story. Um, With good our friend Aaron Brosman. Yes, which is quite enjoyable and you should go pick up. Yes, it is about a barbarian cooler than Conan. Yes, I said it. (laughs) Anyway, that's us. That's us. Mm -hmm. So my shameless promotion is for musicals. (laughs) (laughs) Because you live in one. I have no shameless And I think everyone should like musicals as much as I do. And Joe has nothing. (laughs) Uh, Promote The Muppet Show. Yes, get on Disney Plus and watch The Muppet Show. They finally have all five seasons. Two of them have never been released on DVD. This is a big deal, folks. <laughs> I agree, because the lawyers took away my rights years ago. <laughs> it's a miracle Disney is releasing this at all. <laughs> you sound like Disney has current locked up somewhere. <laughs> well, it's been hard since Jim died. Yeah, like, true, true. Yeah, it was really fun to have Luke Skywalker and his cousin Mark on. Yeah, I didn't know Luke had a cousin. That's wild. Yeah, they look so much alike. It's kind of like they were cloned or something. But, I mean, he's got an excellent tailor. I love his outfit. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, we're done. Yeah. Jimmy, I thought you were more of a Han guy personally, but okay. You know, they probably couldn't afford Harrison Ford at that point. Uh, Harrison Ford is too cool for the Muppet show. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> okay. And before this gets more derailed... Jimmy Q credits thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand if you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion we'd love to hear from you so email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com your message could be read on a future episode of the show our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASAJimmy and the Monster Island Board of Directors at MonsterIslaBOD. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations! And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Twitch. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!